Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to October's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Later, I'll be talking to Mark Thompson, Managing Director of Tauga Group on the graphite market and his company's new integrated anode project in Sweden. But for now, I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac Olera, MD of Electrios Energy, to run through some of the key talking points from February. Hi, Cormac. Good to talk to you again. Hello, Mark. Great to chat again. Yep, and uh, wow, we actually got to meet in person for the first time at the uh, at the Fast Markets conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, you didn't like run in the opposite you. direction. That was a that was a bonus. Didn't feel like I was meeting somebody new though for the first time. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Let's kick off with the Fast Markets conference because it was obviously a gathering of the great and the good of the European battery and battery raw material industry. God knows why they invited us, but we did sit in or, or we did take part in, in, in quite an interesting uh, panel at the conference, which was really how some of the lessons from China can be applied to Europe. What sort of stood out for you in terms of that panel? What really stood out to me was the sentiment that we are moving to smaller battery packs and smaller size vehicles, especially in Europe, or there will be a demand amongst consumers for the similar class vehicles uh, like the uh, BMW uh, i3 in China with the Wuling Mini. It's noticeable in Europe that two of the ubiquitous top 10 selling models are the Fiat 500 BEV and the, um, the Dacia Spring, uh, which we've talked about before. They're both pretty small vehicles. But you know, I think the point from, from Europe and China, if you look at the average or the median battery size of the top 10 models in China, it's about 40 kilowatt hours. And the median battery size of the top 10 vehicles in Europe is just over 50 kilowatt hours. So we've got a ways to go, would you say? Yeah, but China came down pretty quick. Uh, I mean, it it can happen as quick as uh, several years. Obviously, there's a a gap in the market for these size cars. China's found it. And some of the Chinese EV startups are also moving from the adapting and adding small size EVs to their portfolio, along with the, you know, the first went uh, sedans, and then they attacked the crossover market. And now there's just no ignoring the uh, the size of the mini EV market. And I suppose in Europe, I mean, it's worth saying, we're not necessarily talking about the Wuling Hongguan Mini. We're talking about maybe a small SUV like the Dacia Spring with a relatively small battery, maybe a 100, 150 mile range. I mean, it's not a tiddly car. It's not a golf buggy or anything, is it? Well, it could be. It depends, <laughs> depends on the size. Hey, I'm trying to sell this here. <laughs> okay. We don't have like super cities like they have in China. So that's, yeah. that's a big yeah. difference around. And I think, you know, one of the things that stood out for me, and I, I, I think sort of fits into this sort of small EV discussion as well, is the the whole ternary versus LFP discussion. And, you know, we talked about it many times on the podcast, but I think there still is a very strong perspective in, in Europe and even more in the in the US that LFP isn't a, a proper formulation. It's not realistic. Whereas you and I both know that LFP is 50 plus percent of, of vehicles sold in China, which is the world's biggest EV market. 
you know, looking at some of the the, the forecasts, I mean, um, Sam Adam, who was on the panel with us for, from LMC, I mean, he was forecasting something like a 10% LFP market share in Europe. And for me, that's just not realistic, given the direction of travel from companies like Tesla and Volkswagen, etc. What do you think about that? Yeah, it depends uh, who you get your information from. As you said, the OEMs are the battery manufacturers. There's clearly no real moves in Europe towards LFP gigafactories at the moment. Some of the more promising European gigafactory projects are all NMC, ternary focused for sure. And the announcements that those companies don't don't include any don't don't mention LFP. And if they do, it's for energy storage. So yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a crosstalk between uh, the OEMs and the uh, battery manufacturers. Then again, if we take a step down towards towards European LFP cam production, it's non-existent as well. So, I think for me, that's a huge problem that, that's emerging in Europe. I mean, LFP has been so successful in China. It's definitely a, a, you know, a cheaper formulation. It actually has less lithium in it than ternary for, formulations as well. It plays to all of the the restraints, if you will, on the industry at the moment. Yet we're just not seeing an investment in the LFP supply chain in Europe, and I think that's going to be a mistake that's going to come around and bite the European EV and in industry on the backside in a in a bad way. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's obvious that we'll be reliant on China for LFP batteries for a, a number of years to come. Even if they started building a LFP supply chain in Europe today could be back in a, a decade before you get the kind of volumes required. But there is an enormous amount of LFP coming on in, in China. It's going to go end up somewhere. It's going to be cheap. It's going to be a high, relatively high energy density. It's going to give satisfactory range. You know, uh, even today with, uh, with the CTP and CTB, LFP batteries in the blade, for example, can get you over 300 kilometers. So it's going to grow in China. And China's really dominating the direction of the market, really. When you look at EV sales, also BYD's huge sales again this month, as you pointed out in the BMR, as the uh, OEMs uh, add uh, extra, uh, additional models to the to their portfolios, Tesla's losing market share. So it might not be a, how Tesla see the future market, uh, which it has been for the last five, 10 years. I noted in the BMR that, that BYD have got that medium SUV model. I can't, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's the Tang which has got something like a, a 300 kilometer range, uh, you know, a 60 kilowatt hour battery charges to 80% in, in 15 minutes and retails for $22,000. So it is quite an important consideration when you think that the median EV price in Europe is about 35,000 pounds, 35,000 euros. We need to be having cheaper EVs with smaller batteries if we're going to get into the mass market. And I, I think LFP ticks all those boxes. Even this month in, in China, we're seeing LFMP cam factories commissioned. That is not not started construction, commissioned and in production. Some huge volumes from um, Dynonic commissioned their 100,000 uh, 100, ton LFMP cathode plant. Okay. So, okay. That's good. Okay. I mean, let's just talk about another factor that that really stood out for me from the panel, which is research insofar as the Chinese have been very, very innovative in developing new formulations, new chemistries, new approaches. And I mean, that kind of fits in with LFP as well, because I, you know, we wouldn't be talking about 
LFP if if BYD hadn't developed the blade battery, if BYD and CATL hadn't developed uh, cell to pack and cell to chassis. So the Chinese have been very, very uh, innovative in in some of their sort of technical developments. We don't really see that to the same extent in Europe, do we? One of the significant technical developments was the the last one we heard out of Europe was the Volkswagen MEB production platform, which is manufacturing the uh, VV most efficient way possible. Um, where yeah, China innovation was driven by the fear and the real fear that the subsidies Chinese EV subsidies were being removed, and that fear has been hanging over the Chinese EV manufacturers since 2014. They were only supposed to last one year and it's been constantly extended and it's been extended again to the end of 2023. They were supposed to expire at the end of 2022. So on the last round of Chinese uh, subsidies expiring, which was the end of 2019, for the Chinese EV manufacturers, there was no benefit in using NMC over LFP at that time, but they still, in terms of subsidies, and they still the customers still required reasonable range. And they got the thinking caps on and, uh, and came up with cell to pack and new battery formats. You know, in the conferences only three, four years ago, people were asking, what's the format going to be? Is it cylindrical or prismatic? No, now it looks like it's blade, you know? So mm-hmm. none of this stuff was even on the horizon at that time. So, and we're seeing the same in the U.S. with the IRA, where EV subsidies will are mainly focused on mass markets and there's going to be some means testing involved also. So... You know, the likes of Tesla now will struggle to adapt their cars for that market uh, unless they move towards LFP, which Tesla have for their standard models. But they'll have a few more uh, shortcuts to take before they uh, get to the kind of price range required to achieve U.S. subsidies. So so you think that uh, sort of research leadership will come in the Western world markets, just needs to get their feet under the table a little bit, because obviously China's been at this EV game for, for four or five years now. Whereas even though you know Tesla was the early market leader, it's it's fair to say that in many areas they've they've surrendered te- technical leadership to the Chinese in the last few years. The Western world has been more focused. I, I know on that there'll be a lot of Tesla Arty out there probably throwing stuff at the uh, radio at the moment, but it is fair to say from a battery perspective, at least, if not from a from a um, EV perspective, that. Tesla has lost a little bit of ground to the Chinese in terms of technical innovations in the space. They did innovate the 4680 cell, which has taken the industry by storm and has had many, many, many copycats, including in China. So um, mostly the Western OEMs and their battery research centers were focused on cell chemistry and how do we squeeze another watt hour per kilogram out of ternary, which is obviously the most focused, material focused on how much extra nickel can we add without causing safety issues. So they were more focused on, uh, on that area. But, you know, BYD just announced a new cell also this month, right? They, the hexagonal honeycomb style battery pack. So they haven't sat in their laurels with the BYB blade. They innovated again. And this new hexagonal style cell, they claim it's got the highest packing efficiency, reducing uh, extra weight and increasing uh, watt hours per kilogram again. Wow, great. I wonder what we're going to get from them next. And then I think the final point just to to come out of the panel for me was this very sort of Europe-specific issue of there is a a very much a feeling at the conference that Europe may have gone down the wrong strategic line with over-regulation of the industry. And a comparison of China allowed us to understand that 
you know, in the early days in the Chinese industry, it wasn't a highly regulated industry. It's only been as the industry started to mature that they've started to, to bring in more regulation in the industry. You contrast that with Europe, where there has been a very, very high degree of regulation from the beginning. And given what I've mentioned about Europe over the last sort of 12 to 18 months in terms of how slowly parts of the industry are evolving, you do wonder if Europe is over-regulating at the beginning. In terms of battery production, the industry is still tiny, tiny percentage of where it needs to be. So, you know, there's still room for uh, Europe to grow and catch up. But um, China is introducing very strict regulations over the last number of years, but especially in terms of ESG, yeah, more the E than S and G. But I think there has to be a balance between the two. The regulations by proposing lithium chemicals as toxic is obviously going to affect many aspects of the lithium supply chain and most notably hydroxide, carbonate and um, lithium processing in Europe. Companies who are making investments in that sector will, and OEMs buying the products and battery maker will look at the price difference between highly regulated uh, region versus a region a little less regulated in terms of uh, how they view battery chemicals and their toxicity. I think, you know, it's an interesting contrast between the two regions for for North America looking on because, you know, they can see the mistakes and successes that both Europe and China have made in the development of the industry and and perhaps take take a middle ground that might allow them to to grow to grow an integrated supply chain much faster. So I think that's a you know important takeaway. We'll finish with the um, advert for fast markets. Quite a lot going on in China this month. Yeah, lots of battery days. There's been a Caleb or Caleb or CLAB one-stop battery day where they were focused on uh, our day. We're highlighting their um, cobalt and nickel-free uh, chemistry, high manganese, which is chemistry that's been in and around the spoken as the future of uh, lithium-ion batteries for EVs. So CLAB, and we had uh, Pharasis with their super pouch solution day. And there's been a couple other battery days over the last uh, month or two. On top of that, there's been hundreds of gigawatt hours of um, battery factories announced a real bumper month in China. One of the biggest ones, you might have heard of them, household name, Cornex, announced 150 gigawatt hour EV and ESS battery base. That's big. Uh, I I must admit to never having heard of them before. All right. (laughs) But there's quite a lot of that in China as well. I mean, uh, to be fair, there's a a fair amount of that in Europe too. Yeah, yeah. Startups announcing sort of, you know, multi-billion projects and you're like sitting there going... How are you going to raise money for that? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, there's yeah. A, couple, a couple of big ones. CATL yeah. had like four announcements. PYD. Minus the 150, there's some really big announcements. Uh, Sunwada, I mean, CLAB also listed in Hong Kong, or IPO'd yeah. in Hong Kong this week. CLAB, our Sunwada, have got a significant amount of financing. Announced two massive uh, cell product, uh, factories. They split. They've got somewhat EV now. So somewhat predominantly were in the uh, consumer electronics business and now applied their uh, expertise to uh, the EV business and, and have really accelerated. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been uh, tracking their um, growth in, in terms of battery installations and they really are coming up very rapidly, that company. So uh, yeah, that, 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 that's an interesting one. Interesting report out of Bloomberg over the last couple of weeks, which, which tallies with 
my view as well, suggesting that it costs almost uh, 100% more per gigawatt hour to invest in cell manufacturing capacity in Europe and the US than it does in China. I mean, they, they cited valuation of $60 million per gigawatt hour for capacity in China and $100 million in the US and the Western world. It's quite quite an interesting takeaway. And I, of course, the other aspect that you've got to think about is that it takes longer to build a factory in the Western world than it does in China. I mean, some of these Chinese factories, they're doing it in 12 to 18 months now, whereas probably most Western world factories or you know, certainly most of the ones in Europe have been delayed. I mean, you couldn't really build in less than three years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and big financial issues too. One of the big differences there might also be the chemistry of choice. Yeah, uh, that's probably fair. I would say the Chinese top tier manufacturers aren't cutting corners. The big push in China is manufacturing. I think we're on 5.0 now, right? Intelligent manufacturing of fully automated robotic plants. They don't come cheap, right? So, um, but each plant is different for sure. You know, there's not, it's not good gutter. And I think the other, the other point for, for China is that by now with God knows how many hundred gigawatts in, in operation, the Chinese have got lots of experience in building plants and, you know, the plants are, are effectively modular, aren't they? I and, mean, you know, wherever you put them, you're building the same thing generally. So it's much easier, you know, once you have practice of, of building multiple plants than, than it necessarily is in the Western world, where you might be building the first plant in that country or the first plant in that state. And, you know, the regulation and the, the local oversight and everything is a lot more. Uh, well, you see with CATL planning... To build in Hungary, uh, right, 100 gigawatt hour plant. There's been a bit of a resurgence, actually. Asphalt planning, building a second plant, uh, factory in Europe. Goshen have made huge plans to for two factories in the US following the IRA. Uh, so yeah. we're going to see a gigawatt per gigawatt uh, if these factories actually do get built, the cost between uh, Europe and, uh, and US and China. But the factories are 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. They're trying to innovate every factory they build to increase efficiency and utilization rate and cut down costs. So I don't think they're standing still. Yeah. yeah. Factories. Okay. Uh, moving on. Some quite interesting stats out of, well, <laughs> I say interesting, possibly slightly negative stats out of the consumer battery industry in China in the last sort of four or five weeks or so, really regarding raw material price hikes and the impact that that's having on profitability. Varta, which is a a major manufacturer of consumer batteries, particularly in the wearable segment in in Germany, actually, put out a profit warning and, and withdrew their guidance for the rest of 2022 because they said that the margin pressure was was just too strong. And we've, we've also seen a, a subsidiary of Ganfeng caution on this as well. So it's starting to become pretty difficult in the consumer battery space. And I mean, it's noticeable that if you look at some of the major drivers of consumer battery demand growth in the last couple of years, which have been things like wearables and mobile phones and the power tools, growth is slowing at best and turning negative at worst, which means that that's going to be quite a, a tough space to be in. Yeah, most of the outlooks I've seen for consumer electronics are static over the next 10 years or going slightly negative, yeah, in terms of market growth. They're not immune uh, to, to raw material prices. You, you know, so the consumer electronics predominantly uh, use lithium cobalt oxide, which is... Uh, Got even more cobalt in it. So, yeah. but the uh, cobalt hasn't been running away in price though recently in, in China anyway. But um, been heading south the, the cobalt price. Yeah, 
that's obviously okay, but uh, certainly lithium prices is... Yeah, surprise with Gang Feng when they probably are their own lithium supplier there. And that was supposed to be a move uh, to be completely integrated uh, up and down the supply chain. But um, not sure how closely their uh, their consumer electronics company is uh, in contact with their mining division. Sort of staying with China, a very interesting deal announced in the space, which is uh, NEO, the Chinese OEM, taking a stake in Greenwing, which used to be a graphite producer, but is now sort of diversifying into Argentinian lithium brine. NEO agreed to pay $8 million, take a 12% share in Greenwing. But I think what's very important here is it has a call option as part of the deal to acquire a percentage of the lithium project. And that would be, I think, the first deal in this cycle where you see an OEM coming in and potentially taking a a stake in a production asset. Probably not a shock to us, given what we've talked about over the last six or 12 months, that it's a Chinese company thinking outside the box, but an interesting move nevertheless. Yeah, yeah, that one kind of popped in my radar. I noticed it over the last week, but um, it's um, interesting. I'm not that familiar with Greenwing, I guess, uh, in terms of uh, I, I don't think too many people are. But oh, right. yeah, <laughs> I just wonder how Neo Neo found them, picked up a map of Argentina. But uh, yeah, I think you know BYD have made some moves in Africa, right? In terms of um, securing lithium, uh, CATL, of course, in, in Canada. But um, yeah, for EV a startup that is not that uh, strong financially over the last number of years. But, um, you know, Neo, very aggressive. You know, they're just, yeah. they're in four markets in Europe now. Who would have thought that about a Chinese uh, OE, uh, EV maker only a few years ago? And, uh, and now BYD, of course, with the uh, 100,000 EV sales to six. But um, yeah, yeah, it's nice to see uh, an OEM go further upstream and secure lithium. Um, so, so, so that brings to four the OEM resources industry deals announced so far this year. We can add the, the Ford Liontown deal and the Stellantis Vulcan deal and then the um, the prepayment agreement from, from last month. I, I mean, it's oh, yeah, yeah, hardly yeah. impressive, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think you were, it's getting towards the end of the year. I think you were saying the same thing uh, at the start of this year. Uh, <laughs> well, I was saying I expected to see more OEM deals. And to be fair, we did see some. We saw four of them. But it's, it's not, it doesn't show that the OEMs are really sort of understanding the magnitude of the, um, of the funding gap in the space, does it? It's quite clear that uh, on the current course, they're going to be left scrambling. It's a bit of a bet by Neo, right? The Greenwing, mm. uh, how long is it going to be before they can produce a kilogram oh, of... Uh, yeah, a, lo- a long time, a long time. I, I, I think, don't think they've even got a resource yet. So, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a long time before they can be in production, probably latter part of this decade. Right, yeah, that's, uh, that's a murky picture where the lithium situation is going to be in the latter part of the decade. Uh, yeah. If you listen to the Chinese analysts, we're going to be swimming in it. Yeah, well, yes, we'll see. So coming on to that, my favourite topic now i'm not in that boat of uh, equity analyst bashing very interesting data out of chinese trade statistics in july and august saying that the average lithium carbonate import price went up to 70 dollars a kilogram now that's particularly interesting given that a number of sell side analysts and i say analysts in inverted commas there have been suggesting that the 
$70 a kilogram price that's being cited by a lot of the pricing agencies refers to a very small amount of material. Now, clearly, it doesn't. It's a lot more widespread than that. And, you know, I think that has quite significant implications for what the sell side is saying about the market. And just to give you an idea here, the consensus lithium price for 2023 is $41 a kilogram. So that's what nearly 50% below current prices. And for 2024 is $24 a kilogram, even further down. And you have to look at the market at the moment and ask, how realistic is that? And if that's what the sell side is using to calculate their price targets on these companies, how undervalued are these companies? Yeah, interesting. Uh, uh, the value uh, of the lithium, it depends uh, where you go in the supply chain, but yeah, you know, it's uh, not forecasted to go. This is, you know, this is only, if, if you look at the, the numbers, this is only the start of it. And, you know, the, the these price increases in lithium carbon imports to China, this is just the start of, of the, the increase cycle. This is, uh, we're going into uncharted territory and it looks like it's going to continue for a number of months before it settles. and. It won't settle uh, much below, as you were saying earlier, 60, 65 uh, USD per kilogram. Yeah, I mean, I mean, not in my view. And I mean, you know, even more evident, you know, in the last couple of weeks of how difficult it is to bring on these projects. I mean, the Salton Sea project in California, that's a, a geothermal DLE project that's been in development for five, six, seven years. The US government withdrawing support for, for Berkshire Hathaway, which had been looking to develop that project. You know, that's in most people's models. That was in most people's models for the latter part of this decade. Now it looks like that's not going to be pushing forward as expected in, in, in terms of timing. And you're sort of, you know, sitting there going, well, you know, I don't think a lot of analysts are being realistic about what actually can come into production and when it can come into production. I think that's the big thing that a lot of outside commentators are getting wrong about this space. They're believing management teams in, in, in terms of when they say they can get into production. And, you know, I've been an analyst for 20 odd years now, and uh, it's analysis 101, never believe the management team. Yeah. Yeah. The US, Brian Daly um, sector. Uh, yeah. If you read any one of those uh, companies, annual or quarterly presentations, everything's coming on basically by 2025. We're going to go from zero to 500,000 tons of LCE or something like that. But if you really look beyond the uh, company presentations, um, DLE technology is is still not there. They're addressing some fundamental issues in terms of technology readiness levels, which I've never seen applied to DLE, but uh, someone should put it on the chart. It looks, there's a significant amount of work to do really if you um, really dig a little bit deeper into the geothermal brines industry. It's been... For as long as companies have been uh, working in geothermal brines, there's been problems with high temperatures, other uh, elements in some of the brine solutions, acidity of solutions, numerous problems which are very tough on uh, existing technologies or experimental technologies. So uh, a little bit concerned about how soon the daily sector can come on, actually. I I mean, I, I think for me, you know, for people sort of thinking about DLE, there's a difference in approach between, you know, when you're doing lab scale testing of a, of a resource and you test it in the lab and you try and get to battery grade material, 
and then the ability to consistently produce battery grade material from your feed with your process over a long period of time. And it's two completely different things. So just because you can achieve battery grade material in the lab does not mean that you can achieve battery grade material for an economic cost on a recurring consistent basis. And I think that's something that investors don't necessarily differentiate between. And certainly, you know, from from the evidence that we've seen of a lot of the sell side work, it's not something analysts are really differentiating between. So I, I think we just got to take some of these supply forecasts with with a pinch of salt. I do believe that the Chinese lipidolite stuff will probably ramp up quite quickly. I agree with many of my my peers about the quality of that material and the need for re, reprocessing capacity for a lot of that material, which is going to slow down the realization of, of true battery grade material. So I, I do think that the, the sell side consensus forecasts at the moment look um, look very, very low. So is there a bit of a wake-up call between that little spat between Lake Resources and Lilac Solutions in terms of... It seems to be more a sort of handbags at 10 paces. You know, right. we, we thought you were going to have it done by September. No, we thought we were going to have it done by November. I don't, I don't think it's a... Um, and, and that's just, you know, completing the plant. It's not, you know, sticking any, any liquid through it. So I don't think so. At this stage, I mean, obviously, you know, there there are a number of DLE pilot plants in production at the moment. We're not really seeing results coming out of them, you know, as much as we would expect to be seeing. So I think that we maybe need to take production forecasts a little bit more with a pinch of salt. It should uh, it should be with tech, technology readiness levels. You know, um, U.S. Department of Energy have a geothermal brands uh, department office, and um, and this office has uh, been in the sector geothermal brine sector for many many years, and uh, it's a pretty good source too if you really want to understand what's going on in uh, the brine space for lithium uh, lithium in, in the U.S. Okay. We will wind up there. I will say uh, thank you very much to Cormac and uh, look forward to speaking to you next month. Yeah, have a good month, Matt. Talk to you next next month. Bye-bye. So moving on to our interview now. As long-time listeners will know, I believe that graphite in general and anode materials in particular is one of the most unrecognized investment opportunities within battery materials globally. There are only a very small number of integrated anode projects outside China, and I'm delighted to welcome Mark Thompson, Managing Director of Tauga Group, which is one of the most advanced of those. Mark, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. Before we start talking about Tauga, I'd just like to start very quickly on the industry. It's fair to say that investors struggle quite a lot to get their heads around the graphite industry. And I mean, it is a complex industry. Anyone looking for a leg up, by the way, can download our investor's guide to graphite from our website, which is available for free. We have obviously seen real strength in Chinese graphite and anode prices this year, with graphite prices up 30 plus percent. Yet ex-China graphite equities are down over the past 12 months. What do you think, as somebody who's who's sort of within the industry, that investors are, are most struggling to get their heads around with the graphite industry? I should probably say I wish I knew. I think it's almost every part of it, to be honest. It's unlike because it's. I think at the at its root, it's because it's not a metal. It's a mineral. It's organic material. 
And so it, its use isn't based just on its purity and doing things in this sort of, shall we say, chemical way that everyone, it's in the textbooks exactly how it's done. In the world of graphite, it's not just purity, but it's also the size of the particles, the shape, their interior crystallinity, the kinetics of how fast they lithiate. And on top of that, it's quite a secretive industry. The, the, the actual skills involved in making those products are hidden within Asian companies predominantly, originally the Japanese and then the Koreans and the Taiwanese and the Chinese. So it's just not been done in the Western world and it's not well um, covered, actually. if I, I, I don't mean to blow too much smoke up you here, but your investor's guide to graphite you know, is one of the few, one of the very few that does a good job at explaining the industry. But the nitty-gritty that investors want is still a bit opaque. So um, all of those factors around the physical parts of graphite and its use in anodes is not, is not well understood or published. Lack of skill in using it and being able to see it, the lack of transparency. And I guess at some point as well, the fact that while most anode is made of graphite, not all graphite can become anode. And that yeah. concept is very poorly misunderstood so that people think that graphite means you can turn it into battery materials when in reality only a small portion of it. So I think they have to become like material scientists or sort of fundamental <laughs> fundamental materialists or something to understand, and that's not a natural place to be. It, it takes some work and it takes some thought to learn how all those fragments fit together to explain graphite on its journey to becoming a battery anode. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's a fair answer. I mean, for, I think for those people who make the effort to understand the industry, there genuinely is a lot of money to be made. But uh, as you say, it is a real struggle to get sort of investors in through the door. And uh, investor education is a, is a huge, a huge issue for this, this sort of very specialized segment. So uh, moving on to your project, you're located in Sweden. And uh, as we discussed, it's an integrated mining and anode manufacturing project. Can you remind me of your latest CapEx estimates and the economics for the integrated project? Sure. Well, we published those in a, a DFS in the middle of last year, and that hasn't fundamentally changed, or when it does, we'll let the market know. But what those numbers were was um, the project's MPV at an 8% discount rate was just over a billion dollars US. The earnings over the life of mine were about um, $4 billion, and uh, annual revenue is about $240 million US per year. The capex to build the project is uh, about $480 million US. Okay, that's and, the upfront capex, yeah. Yeah, that's the upfront capex to get. And as you said, it's integrated. So it's a mine, concentrator, a downstream refinery, which consists of purification, shaping, and coating plants. So it's the entire thing from digging the graphite precursor out of the ground, processing it from the raw ore through the raw materials into the active anode products, a coated, purified, shaped graphite particles, which we can sell directly to a battery cell maker. And currently that that pricing is based on um, production of about 19,500 tonnes of anode per year. So that's enough to do about 
15 to 16 gigawatt hours of per annum battery capacity from from that development. Okay. And so just to go on to the sort of anode manufacturing process, Townode C is your primary product and your processing is based on a low temperature alkali purification process. Now, given the current focus on energy costs and the environment, what sort of advantage does that give you over sort of competing processes? Certainly, there are a number of processes. We found we naturally looked at using Sweden's abundant hydropower for looking at electric-based thermal purification. But we found we found actually there were decreases in the performance of the batteries made from anodes mm-hmm. that way, and we're not we never really found out why. But we we shifted to this um, chemical pathway, which is very very scalable and produces products we can actually make into other like have a essentially a recyclable component or, or something that makes up, you know, fertilizers and other things down the back end. It's good in that it minimizes losses that way. But overall, the energy mix in North Sweden is incredible for its sustainability. It's, it's 100% hydro and or wind, so it's 100% sustainable. It's super low cost, you know, down around three cents US per kilowatt hour. So it sort of starts with that. Having an anode production process on that sort of power grid is a great start to any product. So yeah. that flagship anode product then is on a super clean grid. And then when you add in the fact that our ore body has got these really small flakes, which are it's micro flake graphite, which where the the size of the particles of the graphite is already the same size that's required for batteries. So we mm-hmm. don't actually have to micronize large flakes of graphite into small ones. All of our flakes are already naturally battery size, which are very small. And then we've innovated in our process, the anode production process for Telnode. So our yields of that material are super high. So we, we don't produce some big particles and small particles that we sell into different uh, industrial markets and basket prices, shall we say. It's essentially all turns into anode. So it's a sort of more like an anode mine rather than a a normal flake graphite deposit. So when you put all that together, combined with that sort of purification technology, you end up with super low costs, costs that are competitive with Asia, and something that suits the sustainability profile of operating in a place like Sweden. Fair to say your town owned C, we call it a coated spherinized graphite product. Yep. It's got a 99.95% purity, so that's a three nines purity. How does yep. that stack up against other products that are likely to be in the market or are in the market at the moment? From a purity point of view, it's it's the same, like it's just meeting that standard. So it's battery, uh, you know, what we call battery grade. Battery grade. It gets tested so that the automotives or the battery cell makers test the material. It doesn't really matter what spec you say it is. They have to physically take samples of it in a qualification process. And in that, what we discover is that our materials particularly good at, well, A, of course, it has very low CO2 emissions profile. We obviously are located within a drive to them, so not, not having to be shipped. So, um, but, but the product itself has got characteristics like it's really good at fast charging. Um, it's got very, very low swelling for a natural flake product. Most natural graphite swells a bit. Ours is a bit tougher, like synthetic. It's almost like a natural version of synthetic. So 
even though ours is a natural graphite-based product, it, it sort of performs more akin to a sort of mid-range synthetic in the way it works. Okay. And, and I mean, you touched on sort of testing by end users, uh, what, what we call qualification, I guess, in the industry. Mm-hmm. That's something that investors have got a pretty poor understanding of. You actually got a pilot plant in, in production, I think a, a modular pilot plant. Can you talk a little yep. bit about what your clients have been looking for in terms of the qualification process, how long it lasts, things like that? Yeah, certainly it was an education in the early days of working on anodes rather than just the raw material graphite is that you discover that the battery cell makers, as you say, test the material in what's called a qualification process now for if your batteries are going to go into drones or laptops or something like that, that process might be quite short. But if it's going to go into a, an electric vehicle, that process can take several years. And what it is, is they essentially, instead of just getting lab type samples, and then you promise to go into production and, and make the same stuff, they want to see you prove that it's the same stuff all the way into production from the lab. And then they want to see it scale up and smoothly essentially transition through pilot plants, through demonstration plants into scale production. And along the way, they have to guarantee to a very high standard, almost aerospace quality really, this continuous quality process and they need larger and larger scales of material. So what's called the the A sample is giving someone a kilo of your of your anode and they build a heap of cells, small cells out of it. Might even be some pouches, but normally coin cells. By the time you move to the B sample, this is for automotive qualification, you might be up into heading into the hundreds of kilos and they'll be building large-scale cells being tested more broadly and then you're going towards a C sample is where you're basically locked in, your material's qualified for a model or you're nominated for a model of vehicle and D sample is really full-scale production. It's your early stage production from your commercial plant. And what we learned was that if we didn't have essentially a large demonstration plant or a qualification plant that could prove the scale up between a pilot scale and fully commercial scale, you'd get a bit stuck. You wouldn't be able to provide the size of the samples they need and prove that you knew how to make anode. And making anode, you know, fully coated anode is so much more complex than making just purified spherical that very few people do it outside Asia, if if any. And so you have to build this larger scale plant, what we call the electric vehicle anode plant. And if you don't, you, you can't actually produce anode samples for them to give you the offtakes that you want to run the project. Let's just talk about this. I mean, you, you, you talked about, how the um, end users want to produce full-scale size batteries. And obviously, a, mm. a full-scale size battery uses several hundred kilograms of graphite. So you need to be producing multiples of that in terms of anode to give enough material for, for several full-size batteries. And I think that there is a, a misunderstanding about the scale of qualification plants that's necessary amongst investors. I mean, you genuinely do have to produce an awful lot of material, don't you? You not only have to produce tons of material, you have to show the capability of producing it continuously, like month after month. And you also need to show quality control. You need to start introducing QA, QC processes 
we have a laboratory on site that not only is testing the material physically, doing the usual things like tap density, purities and things, but we actually make batteries on site and test them. So our anode material is, is actually building batteries in our lab and as part of the check process, as part of the quality process, you're checking that the anode energy density is, is actually performing in the batteries as part of it. So that's a collection of skills that is not commonly going to be developed by a miner. And even in downstream processing, it's a collection of skills that don't occur much outside of universities and sort of pilot plants. Normally you'll have one part of it, not the whole thing. So the anode qualification plant is really a true micro version of a proper commercial production plant like you'd currently see today in China or Korea or, or Japan. And it's a commitment and it's a level of technology and know-how that is a barrier, real barrier to entry to people attaining that level. But if you do manage it, of course, the, the profit margins are much better. You have a very different than strategic place in the value chain and, and your economics are um, you know, superior to if you only do raw materials. Yeah. Okay. Before we move on, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, your work in the area of, uh, of silicon anodes. Obviously, silicon is very much a next generation product for the anode industry. Um, and you've been doing a, a fair amount of work around the incorporation of, of silicon into, into graphite anodes. Can you just talk a little bit about your developments in that area? Sure. Yeah, we started working in earnest on silicon anodes a few, uh, two or three years ago on the basis that as an as a battery materials company, you should really have multiple products. And probably it was fair to say at the time, silicon was a bit next generation. But now I'd say it's probably more like near term. I would say that there are already um, battery companies that you would know that introduce small amounts of silicon already, but they're limited with how much they can put in because they're really just putting in quite buff, yeah, raw, raw amounts. I We've mean, I, I guess a, for... for um... For generalists, we should say currently people are talking about around about 5% of silicon and the, the issue with silicon is that it swells a lot more than, than graphite, so it destabilizes the battery. And that's yes. why we're not putting large amounts of silicon in at the moment, even so, though it's got much higher energy density. Yeah, it's essentially the more silicon you put in, the higher the energy density you get, but the shorter the lifespan of your battery because it swells and causes all sorts of other problems. So it consumes a lot of lithium within the within the battery as it goes through these changes. So silicon's got these pros and cons. And the, the, essentially, the industry seems to be splitting into two main camps. One where the silicon is, um, you're taking pre-existing silicon and milling it down to then try and use graphite and graphene to let the particles slide over each other uh, so that they don't they don't affect the battery too much as they swell. And the other way is to take very high-quality chemical forms of, of silicon in the form of silane and manipulating that as a gas to end up with a, a similar sort of particle. So that's one is sort of engineering the heck out of the silicon, as it were, from a yeah. chemical point of view. And the other one is what we do specialise in, which is engineering the graphite and graphene to enable the silicon to be used. And we believe that's the largest, like the most scalable way and the most commercially viable way of making large amounts of silicon. And what we find is we've had some samples with some customers that we you know, hopefully will talk about very soon that are wanting to commercialise these materials a lot faster than what we thought. 
and there seems to be a real push on. I believe it's because the extra energy density of silicon can allow battery chemistries like LFP that yeah. are actually a little bit lower in energy density than ones with higher amounts of, of, of nickel and, and other materials like that. It can allow them to economically maybe perform like... Yeah. Compete a little uh, bit better against... More, uh, yeah, like a higher quality battery. So, so I think in that way there's a push on to get to the point where someone can commercially make large amounts of low-cost silicon and we intend for that to be Telga and we're looking very closely at the roadmap of our silicon product which was designed from the beginning to be a not really a super high performance uh, material we make actually one with a 30 to 50 percent silicon content and wow. then okay. you can well it is does turn out to be pretty good but then mm. you you sprinkle that the battery maker can essentially sprinkle that into their existing graphite anodes and water it down, should we say, or right. add it to whatever percentage they want. So whether it's 10, 15, 20 or less. The point is to make something that is an option for you, depending on the other characteristics, to get a higher performing battery from a lower cost sort of base. It's something that is probably a very underestimated part of our company is the potential for that. I mean, companies that do silicon these days are you know, that are that are you know, have spacked in America and things like that, and as individual technology companies have got a really high value, a value much higher than our sort of graphite-based company today. But we see it as very complementary because the silicon particles in reality are composites of silicon and graphite slash graphene. So if we can sort of keep them together, and our technology allows us to do that, we think that we can probably turn silicon from a next-generation material to a near-term production opportunity. Okay, that, that's interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll be following that with interest. Now, you recently announced that you signed a non-binding offtake agreement with Automotive Sales Company, or ACC. So ACC is a cell manufacturing joint venture between Mercedes, Stellantis, and Total. That sounds like quite an exciting deal. What does that mean for Talga? We have to do, we're working with over 20 sort of battery companies are testing our materials at any time. And we have tens and tens of customers outside that as well. But they're all working under non-disclosure agreements. And it's a pretty secretive sort of industry, frankly, especially around graphite and anodes rather than, you know, as compared to lithium and, and nickel and things like that that are more visible, shall we say. So I think the first thing it did is showed that we have a viable product that Telnode C works. So I hope it convince, convinces people that someone's tested it and wants yeah. to do something about it. Secondly, while it's a non-binding at this stage, we are moving towards uh, binding very soon. Uh, it's, it's slated to be moved to binding by the end of next month. That will help underpin project finance. The ACC deal is for about 60,000 tonnes of anode over five years, and that would represent about 60% of our planned stage one production. So it sort of de-risks from a funding perspective, the ability for banks and, and other lenders to underwrite your project. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's pretty significant on both those terms. And lastly, ACC have got some pretty big needs. They've announced publicly that they want to go to over 120 gigawatts of battery capacity per annum. And that would require about 150,000 tonnes a year of, of finished anode. So, and currently, this deal over five years would average about 12,000 tonnes a year as compared to 150,000 tonnes of just their demand alone. 
so yeah, we we see it as um yeah we're very proud that they chose us to go through this process with, and we're excited about the potential of continuing to work with them on their needs in the future, and of course yeah from a I guess a strategic viewpoint, it's good for Europe and Sweden to to see that car makers not just like Mercedes but Stellantis, which encompasses a lot of big volume brands like Fiat, Opel, Vauxhall and US brands like Jeep, that they're moving towards, they're moving upstream to do deals with you know, what are essentially um, startup battery material manufacturers like ourselves. Now, I think it's fair to say that if you were a lithium company and you just signed an offtake agreement, you'd have uh, funding partners breaking down the door to get to you. Where are you in terms of, uh, of project finance and project fundraising, as it were? Are you seeing a, a steady stream of interest or is it still quite specific? We've been pleasantly surprised, to be honest. We've we've found that uh, in in Europe, we've had numerous financial institutions coming up to the site, coming up to Sweden and, and seeing our electric vehicle anode facility, as well as the trial mine we've been running up there as well this year. And they've all given a lot of positive feedback and we're feeling pretty confident that they're aligning with our goals. We were really happy to get the European Investment Bank up there, the Swedish Export Credit Corp and the Nordic Investment Bank, along with others, a lot of leading banks, but also these export credit agencies from different countries, including those of our supporters like um, ABB out of Switzerland. So I think it's been, as I said, pleasantly supportive from the both the commercial and the state institutional financing groups, but that process is underway, so it's not finalised yet. Um, yeah. Certainly some more offtake um, you know, would be beneficial, but in general I would say that while it's definitely harder than, you know, like, yeah, the lithium boom guys get to have, it's been also better than we thought probably six or 12 months ago because I think graphite's the last cab off the rank of all the battery materials that's starting yes. to get not only press, but the automakers themselves are talking about it so, so it's spreading out into the whole as a, as, a, as a demand pull across the supply chain. And the banks are also hearing that. They're, they're hearing of their clients looking for these sorts of materials. So oh, it's coming along pretty well, I'd say. Okay, that's brilliant. When I was at the Fast Markets uh, Battery Raw Materials Conference in uh, Barcelona last month, there was a general feeling that the EU is kind of shooting itself in the foot by over-regulating the extractive industries in, in battery materials. What's been your experience of, of operating in Sweden? Are you struggling with sort of over-regulation or, or has it been a relatively easy sort of development pathway for you? I think, look, in general, I'd say that the EU is making, you know, some good steps towards policies that will work for the industry and, and for Europe broadly. But um, certainly what they did around lithium was a surprise and I don't see how that's going to help anyone. But for graphite, they don't seem to be coming from that. They haven't actually applied anything like that, and nor is they're talking about it. So graphite's very inert sort of stuff. It doesn't really chemically, it, it can be a powder, obviously, and a dust, but it doesn't chemically really do things much that causes too much grief with anyone. So I'm not expecting that sort of regulation about graphite. And when it's really ultrafine particles, we've already got reach legislation and other things like that we comply with. So we're not seeing it at a European level. In Sweden, the main issues are around permitting of the mining projects and processing 
facilities. It's just that it's a very bureaucratic process with very poor transparency and really no prescribed timelines and things like that. So I think that we've got sort of two levels we're working on. One is in Brussels at an EU level where we're seeing things like the upcoming Critical Raw Materials Act should provide some opportunities for highlighting and prioritising projects that are important for Europe like ours would be in both in terms of the geopolitics of the supply for batteries but also climate change generally. And then at the Sweden level, we've just had a new government come in there. We're yet to you know, get all the details, but certainly we're in the middle of a permitting process which has been going for a couple of years now as mm-hmm. normal, as per their legislation. And mm-hmm. we, I guess we're expecting in the first quarter of next year to find out if they're going to go ahead with you know, finalising the permitting process on the mine. So right now we... We haven't actually suffered anything yet, put it that way. The, we'd love the process to be more transparent and to go faster. Yeah. But as of yet, we're not really suffering um, you know, classic uh, European or Swedish drama. You know, if I'm an investor in Tauga, what do you see as the biggest risk for, for investors in the, in the company at the moment? I think when you look at the the anode, uh, the electric vehicle anode plant we've built and the ACC offtake and the other agreements and things we've been doing the, from the trial mine to the to the process and the product, I think we've actually de-risked a lot of things around uh, around the company's projects and, and its plans. It's got a huge amount of assets to work from, both in the products and and in in our hard assets in in the resource mineral resources themselves. I think the biggest the biggest risk is delays in the permitting for the for mines or the expansions of the mines. That's what everyone is, I guess, concerned about is will the Swedish court approve the mining permit? And if they do or they don't, is you know, what sort of delays are around that? If if they do approve it, but are there delays? That's the sort of thing. But so far we've received pretty positive feedback. Uh, back in June, the local government authorities said that they could they found that the mine could be approved with the appropriate conditions and the conditions are all things that we pretty much have already suggested anyway so we've got reason to be confident and i guess we're only a few months away from finding out okay okay Uh, and and i guess the final thing is um and and i kind of ask all of my graphites uh ceos this but becoming quite an embarrassing question but what do you think that the market's just not getting about tauga at the current valuation there's probably a lot of parts there too i think yeah I think the thing is people, if you're in Canada or Australia, you probably see as a graphite miner that has added on downstream processing to try and make projects work. Mm-hmm. They think that all the downstream anode things you're doing are, are almost like an excuse to try and keep things fuzzy and busy because you know, the mining doesn't work that well. There's not, there's not a lot of glory in graphite miners around the world in the last five to ten years, that's for sure. In reality, we developed, you know, we've got a team of 60 people of which most of them are material scientists. We've got a lab in Cambridge where we develop our own battery materials and we've already been running pilot plants and, and demonstration plants in Sweden and Germany for years now. We have quite a deep know-how and we actually compete not with graphite miners but with groups like Mitsubishi Chemical, Hitachi, well, now Shawadenko, Hosco. In China, you know, Zichen slash Pudelai and BTR. So when we bid, when we bid on anode supplies to battery makers, they're, they're our competitors. We're not 
we don't find ourselves really competing with, we're not really a graphite miner. We're actually our true battery materials company that mm-hmm. specialises in the carbon-rich products. And uh, I think that people just don't accept it until they visit our facilities and see what we're doing with their own eyes and then they sort of get that. And I think that's probably what the market just doesn't get at the moment. We're sort of not in the advanced chemicals crowd, we're in the mining mm-hmm. crowd and that's that's not really where we're at and not because of our claims but because what we what we actually do. I think it's fair to say that there's always been a problem with investors understanding the value-add potential of companies that go sort of more into the midstream. Um, it's always been a delay in, in, in people really getting their head around that and, and getting the valuations that companies like that deserve. To me, it's a bit strange because it's a little bit like if you proposed in the early days, like if if cars, if if you proposed, say, building an electric car like a Tesla, and you could propose doing building the whole car from scratch and being very you know integrated in that way, and people wouldn't believe you or they you know, didn't value you for that. But there was an option for you just to say make electric motors or just make mm-hmm. batteries. But it's not this, you don't end up in the same places where Tesla has ended up, for example. And that's yeah. the way we see things is. You can mine graphite, you can purify it, you can shape it. But if you actually make code to denote and you you build the whole thing in a vertical integrated way, to us that's more not only strategically but economically valuable over time. So over time you will be weighed on that importance and that profitability and the growth potential of that is beyond just doing the raw products and it maybe it just takes time for people to realise that. Okay, um, that's very clear. Uh, Mark Thompson, Managing Director of Tauga Group, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, pleasure, Matt. Anytime. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for October. As always, you can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, Editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.